Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Antioch. Isn't it a beautiful day today? Yes. Thank you for making it out here on a holiday weekend. I was expecting there to be only a faithful few, but I think we've got a good crew here for, uh, for a long weekend. So let me just echo Amy's warm welcome to Antioch at Drake Park. Thank you for making the time to come today to worship and to connect with one another. Uh, for those of you that were able to stay a little late with us last week for our picnic, it was so great to meet so many of you, connect with new faces, and it was just a blast to do something in real life with other people. Amazing. Good time. So for those of you that are new here, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on our team, and I'm thrilled to spend the next few minutes diving into some scripture with you. And as we continue to engage with the church calendar, I wanted to point out that today is Trinity Sunday. It's actually one of the few Sundays that commemorates a doctrine or an idea rather than an event or a person, which is kind of weird to think about, but just think about the days that we've celebrated in the past. We've had Pentecost Sunday last week. Um, If you follow us on Instagram, we posted about Ascension a few weeks ago. We celebrate Easter, Christmas, but on Trinity Sunday, we celebrate the unity of God the Father, Jesus the Son. This day was established during a time where there were several heresies going on questioning the idea of the Trinity. So just like it was then, it's an opportunity for us to mark our belief that the persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another, but united in will, in essence. They also say, if you talk about the Trinity too much, you start to say something heretical. So I'm not going to say much more about that, but it is the final celebration of the church year as we head into ordinary time comes at the conclusion of our celebrating Christ's resurrection and ascension and Easter. It comes after last week's celebration of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Trinity Sunday, it ties together those events in unity with God the Father. And as you just heard from Pat Kent, our text today comes from John's gospel and is pretty close to the beginning of that gospel account, only a few chapters in. Uh, But that gospel starts with, in the beginning was the word, but just to set the stage for a little bit, the things that happen in the chapters uh, preceding this are Jesus's calling of his disciples. Um, We see Jesus as the best wedding guest ever, right? Turns water into wine when they run out. Uh, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, flipped the tables in the temple courts. And so it's been a fairly eventful start to this gospel. Our text today kicks off a string of conversations with someone starting with Nicodemus, but then we have the Samaritan woman, a Gentile official, the man at the pool of Bethesda, and these are all people who are with diverse backgrounds and different needs that Jesus meets individually. And Nicodemus is one of those individuals in scripture in which there are a lot of opinions about. He is actually kind of a contentious figure because some people think he is this ultimate archetype for discipleship and other people say he's an overly religious person who never really understood Jesus. He embodies everything that's wrong about faith. Others call him the hidden disciple that all along he was secretly advocating for Jesus. 
And as with most things, my hope is that today you'll see that it's probably somewhere in the middle, but that his conversation with Jesus in our text today teaches us a lot about faith, the Trinity, and God's relationship to the world. And this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus holds true to a pretty standard structure that happens throughout John's gospel. And it goes something like this. Uh, Someone asks Jesus a question, and then Jesus responds with something that is super confusing. And so then that person just gets more confused. And then Jesus says another thing that is even more confusing. And then this person gets even more confused until finally Jesus wraps it up and tries to make you know, sense of all of that. And so we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at our text in three chunks related to three questions, or almost questions, that Nicodemus asks. But first, um, a little background on Nicodemus that it tells us in this passage is uh, he is a Pharisee, which uh, most of you probably know. He, it's a very legalistic religious group which literally meant separated one. And I know that Pharisees get a bad rap. They get picked on by Jesus a lot in scripture, which is rightfully so, but they actually started out from a pretty good place. They really wanted to know scripture. They really wanted to know the law. They wanted to know what God's guidance was for their life, but they just took it too far. They made all these extra rules and regulations to govern every conceivable situation in life. And they fostered this deep sense of legalism that had spiraled out of control by the time of Jesus. Nicodemus is also a religious leader uh, serving on the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin and most likely a a wealthy individual. So he is a Pharisee. He is on the Sanhedrin. He's rich. He's on every who's who list there in Israel. He is kind of a big deal. And in the midst of all this, he has heard the rumors about Jesus, of of the miracles that Jesus has been performing. Verse two tells us that he comes to Jesus during the night and why he comes to Jesus at night has also generated a lot of different theories. Just one of the many unknowns about Nicodemus, which is part of why he's so contentious, but some think that he comes to Jesus at night because this is a metaphor for his spiritual state. He is in darkness. Others think that he is in hiding. Maybe he is that hidden disciple. Uh, Another theory is that he knew that rabbis typically studied late into the night. So he knew he would find Jesus awake and alone for a conversation. But here is what I think. I think that Nicodemus knew his stature as a wealthy religious leader, someone who people looked up to, and that he knew if he showed up to visit Jesus during the day and everyone saw him, people would assume that meant he supported this this Jesus character, this up and coming guy. And so I think his approach to Jesus at night shows that he was cautious, but open-minded that he was ready to receive a new revelation from God if he was sure of its authenticity. He didn't want to point people in the wrong direction. He had heard all of the rumors about Jesus, about the miracles he performed. I mean, I am sure all of Galilee was buzzed about Jesus turning water into wine. Buzzed? No? Okay, come on. Just making sure you're paying attention. And so Nicodemus, he he wanted to investigate for himself. And he asked Jesus a question without really asking a question when he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
So that's not explicitly a question, but that is a question. He's saying, is that true? I've heard these things about you. Are you for real? Are you the real deal? And so following our structure that Nicodemus has asked this kind of non-question and Jesus responds with something that is pretty hard to understand. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So probably not what Nicodemus expected to hear. It's kind of a random response, but this born again language or rebirth language is something that was present in Jewish thought. It was present in Greek philosophy, the Old Testament scriptures, and we will see it as a theme throughout the New Testament. Uh, People in kind of our Christian circles are often described as born again Christians, or maybe you've seen that phrase uh, during political seasons, or they do polling of born again Christians. But What's interesting about that word that we translate for again, born again, is that it can actually mean three different things. It can mean uh, born from the beginning, it can mean born again, or it can also mean born from above. And so which is it? Which is the best translation? And my answer is yes, all of them. Because Jesus, through John, was encapsulating all of these different ideas and using wordplay. Because to be born again is to undergo such a radical newness that it is like a new birth from the beginning. It's also to have such a profound change in your soul that can only be described as being born again. And the whole process, it's not a human achievement because it comes from the grace of God. It comes from above. But Nicodemus, he, he takes Jesus pretty literally in his response, and we totally would all do the same thing, so don't judge him. And he says in our second question, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. Again, in our structure, Nicodemus has asked Jesus a question. Jesus has responded with something confusing, and now Nicodemus is making it even worse. He hasn't noticed this intentional wordplay and he's taking Jesus super literally and missing the point. And so Jesus tries to clarify. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And here, Jesus is using the imagery of water and spirit to emphasize what an authentic spiritual life looks like, what it means to be born again, what it means to be born from above. Jesus is likely making a connection to events that happened a few chapters previously where John the baptizer was baptizing with water. And water is it's the symbol of cleansing, being baptized of water just as it is for us now, It's symbolic of our sins being forgiven and forgotten by Jesus. Symbolizes a death of the old life and an entrance into the new. But but John the baptizer said that while he only baptized with water, one would come who would baptize with the spirit because the spirit is the symbol of power. So we see that when Jesus, he takes possession of our lives, it's not only that the past is forgiven and forgotten, the water, but a new power enters through the spirit, which enables us to do what by ourselves we could never do and to be what by ourselves we could never be. 
And this is the dichotomy that Jesus talks about between flesh and spirit. The flesh results in the same mistakes and the same failures, but the spirit gives power and lets us overcome sin and live in the victorious life of God. He says it's both. And this is where we see Jesus do another word play with his discussion of the spirit. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And we've talked about this a bit before, but the word for spirit and wind are the same word in Greek. Hebrew too, but in Greek, it's this word pneuma. If you were in youth group in the early 2000s, you might've even watched some videos called the Numa series. But using this word, Jesus is again using wordplay, but also probably using an example that would be easy to visualize for Nicodemus. We have to remember that the Bible is largely an outdoor book. And that's part of reason why it's so great to be here at Drake Park, because we often read the Bible inside or in church buildings, but most of what happens in scripture was outside. So when Jesus is relating the spirit to the wind, I can just imagine him and Nicodemus sitting on the Mount of Olives, the wind blowing, coming through the Kidron Valley and the leaves on the olive trees are rustling. I mean, we're outside now. You can feel the wind a little bit. You can see the leaves moving. You can see, you can hear it. And Jesus is saying, you, you may not understand where the wind comes from or where it's going, but you can see the wake that it leaves behind. You can understand its effects. You can see its effects and the Holy Spirit is the same way. You may not see how it works, but you can see its effects in human lives. It's unpredictable. It can be hard to grasp, but to be born again or to be born from above, it isn't something that we do on ourselves. The Spirit does it on our behalf. And so Nicodemus, after hearing all of this, he, he says our third question and asks, how can this be? You know, how is this possible? Which could just be him still being confused, but it also might be a plea for direction from Jesus. I know that I've had prayers that have been some version of how can this be? He may have wanted to know that this experience that Jesus was talking about, how it could become his experience too. Because Jesus knows that this idea might be hard to understand. It might even be hard to believe, but that Jesus has the credentials to talk about it. He tells Nicodemus that he has firsthand experience of heaven. That's why he can be trusted. That's why he knows what he's talking about. He's an expert. And when Jesus, he speaks of heavenly things, he's speaking less of a place and more of a state of being. But what I especially love about this answer that Jesus gives to Nicodemus's question is that he meets Nicodemus right where he knows his stuff, and that is the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, as a Pharisee, this is Nicodemus's bread and butter. In verse 13, Jesus describes himself as the son of man, which was a phrase used in the book of Ezekiel and Daniel to describe the Messiah who would one day come. Jesus also references the story of Moses and the snake in the wilderness. If you remember a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, Pastor Linda did an excellent job preaching on this passage, but a brief refresher is the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They've made some poor choices. And as a result, there were poisonous snakes 
invading their camp. The remedy was a bronze serpent that was elevated on a pole for people to look at. When they came out of their tents, they would look upon the serpent and they would be saved from the snakes. And Jesus knows that Nicodemus is not only familiar with this story, but that he knows it well. He alludes to this story as a foreshadowing of his death as the son of man on the cross. He says that the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus on the cross elevated is how we see what God has done with the disease of sin and evil in the world. And Jesus is demonstrating and foreshadowing here that this is what God's own love looks like, sacrificing himself and making the cross the ultimate ladder between heaven and earth, heavenly things and earthly things. The point of the story with Moses and what Jesus is foreshadowing is that hope is not lost. You don't have to let the snakes kill you or your circumstances overwhelm you because God's action in the crucifixion of Jesus has planted a sign in the middle of history that says, believe and you will have eternal life. And this eternal life, what does that look like? And even though it's described as eternal life, it has little to do with duration. It's more qualitative than quantitative. It describes not so much the length of a life as the kind of life that it is. It's a deepening and growing experience. It can never be exhausted in any measurable span of time, but it introduces a totally new quality of life right now. It is both present and future. It's here and now, but we can experience it only in limitation, but it is future because it will widen into a fullness of glory that we can't comprehend yet. But this is what happens when you continually gaze on Jesus, when he is lifted up, you experience eternal life in the present and ultimately in the future. It's a gift that is accepted by belief that changes your today and not just your tomorrow. And in the final two verses of our passage for today, we get what may be the most quoted Bible verse of all time. And if you have a Bible in front of you, if you noticed in your program, you'll notice that the quotations end or the the red lettering uh, signifying Jesus talking gives way to standard script. So this is most likely John offering a commentary in summation of what Jesus has been talking about with Nicodemus. The text we are very familiar with says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Which many of us have heard countless times, or we've seen uh, written on posters or at ball games, all sorts of different venues. But I don't know why we tend to stop at John 3.16, because John 3.16 without 3.17 is an unfinished product. It's a half-baked cake. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is more foreshadowing of the cross. And we see that God did all of this. What would come on the cross, he did it for our sake and not for his. It was not to satisfy his desire for power or bring a universe to heal. It was to satisfy his love. We see that it was, has been, and always will be about love and love for the entirety of the world. 
It wasn't love for Israel or any specific nation. It wasn't love for the good people or those who deserved it. It wasn't love for the people who loved him. It was a wide ranging love that included all of the world and all of creation because God is not a God who smashes us into submission or rules with fear, but he woos us with his love. So it is a wide ranging love for the entirety of the world and creation, but it's also very personal too. Augustine says that God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. This is good news. And so how do we put this all together? First, we have to look at Nicodemus and his story of transformation. Again, people have all different types of opinions on Nicodemus, but we do see how his story progresses. He will appear two more times in the gospel of John. First in John seven, when members of that ruling council, the Sanhedrin, they're making judgments on Jesus and without Jesus there. And he reminds his colleagues that uh, the law requires that a person be heard before they are judged. And then his final appearance is after the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and he provides the embalming spices and he helps Joseph of Arimathea in preparing the body of Jesus for burial. So we don't know everything about what Nicodemus's life looks like in between these moments, but this action after Jesus's crucifixion shows him taking a step of faith and commitment. And he shows us that rebirth in God's reign uh, doesn't come by knowledge or doctrine, but by faith. If religious training or having all the answers or memorizing scripture were enough, Nicodemus would have all that he needs but it's a conversation with Jesus and a step of faith that results in transformation. Nicodemus may have come to Jesus in the dark, but he eventually steps into the light and invites others to see that and come with him. And so can we. And then we also see the importance of being fully committed to the work of the spirit, which I know we don't talk about enough in Christian circles and it's kind of this weird or ethereal idea and, and it's, it's hard to understand. But even in the context of faith, I know that, that I can play it safe. I like to have a plan and stick to it. But Jesus tells us that for people who are born of the spirit, there is a certain unpredictability just like the wind. And I think that we can all use a little more unpredictability in our lives as we seek to be led by the Spirit. Even looking back for Julia and I, when we left our jobs in Chicago with no real plans other than we felt like the Spirit was leading us on a new adventure. And we got into a car not knowing where that trip would end up. And we wound up here in Bend, which is not a bad place. But I know you guys are still getting to know Julia and I, but... That is not our vibe, okay? We are not some wild uh, risk takers. Uh, all of our friends back in Chicago called us the oldest young couple they knew. I mean, Amy came over to our house the other day and she said, wow, you guys have a lot of neutral colors in here. And we're kind of boring, right? Uh, but we knew that this was a big step of faith because we felt the Holy Spirit was calling us into something new and we didn't know what that was and it was scary, but we're thrilled with where the wind has led us. And we are not good at doing that regularly, but we are trying to do it. And so I wonder what are the areas of your life that you might be willing to take a risk with the spirit. 
Maybe it's in a big decision that you are facing. What will it look like to let the spirit lead you to decide? Or maybe it's in a relationship that you're in. How can you let the spirit invade that relationship and lead you? Or or maybe you are a boss. How can you let the spirit lead you as you lead other employees? Or, Or maybe even something as simple as your calendar. I've found that if I plan every hour of every single day, it doesn't leave a lot of room for the spirit to shake things up or to bring something new. Or maybe for some of you, it may even be as simple as taking a risk in worship today. What would it look like for you to let the spirit lead you to a deep connection with God that you couldn't do on your own? What can you do today or this week to put the sails up and let the spirit take you someplace you didn't expect or to help you do something you could never do on your own? Because Jesus tells us that this is what a life born again or born from above looks like. And ultimately, we see Jesus teach us about what it means to live into the kingdom of God and to experience eternal life here and now. Judith Jones is an Episcopal vicar or pastor here in Oregon. And she says it like this. I love it. She says, eternal life is life shaped by and utterly dependent on God's love. It's not simply life in heaven after death. It begins now in the moment the believers entrust their lives to Jesus. When believers receive eternal life, they enter into God's reign in the here and now. They become citizens of God's kingdom, submitting to God's rule and depending on the spirit's guidance. Citizenship in God's reign is not a solo affair. Believers are reborn into God's new family. So good. And, And this family, this kingdom, it's built on love and fueled by the spirit. And the ultimate example of God's love is is demonstrated through sacrificing himself on the cross. He is counting on us to continue to demonstrate his love to the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though it says that God came in love and not to condemn to the world, for some reason throughout history and today as Christians, we lose sight of this love we've been given and we've been entrusted with, and we tend to trade it out with things like being right or or condemning others or being okay with an abuse of the world and creation. But this is why 317 is just as important as 316, that we see that God did not come with a spirit of condemnation, but of love. And we are invited to partner with God in his saving and loving of the world, all its people and all of creation. Now, Wendell Berry is one of my favorite authors, and you're going to hear me quote him all the time. But he says this, I take literally the statement in the gospel of John that God loves the world. I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres, and endures by love, and that insofar as it is redeemable, it can be redeemed only by love. I believe that divine love incarnate and indwelling in the world summons the world always toward wholeness, which ultimately is reconciliation and atonement with God. So Antioch family, on this Trinity Sunday, may we worship God the Father, Jesus the Son who died for us, and live into the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside each one of us to be a radical example of love and spirit dependence. Amen. Would you pray with me?
God, we thank you for the gift of being outside. We thank you that the cool breeze and watching the rustling of the winds reminds us of you and your spirit. And so God, we pray that that we would come to know um, what you've promised for us in scripture, that the very same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells inside each one of us. And so as we go from this place today and over this week, God, may we be radically dependent on you. May we be open to where your spirit is leading and let us put up the sails, God, and trust that you will lead us to a new place. Jesus, we are grateful for your love and we continue to worship you today in this place. Amen.